microbiology, what it is, and how it benefits society is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Dr. Sanford Elberg, a retired professor of microbiology and bacteriology and later the dean of the graduate school at the University of California at Berkeley. Dr. Elberg died in Ukiah, California on April 8, 2011. During his academic career, one of his scientific successes was the development of a vaccine for brucellosis, the disease in farm animals causing the female to abort early in pregnancy. This interview with Professor Elberg, who received a PhD in microbiology from the University of California in 1930, was recorded at his home in Mendocino County, California in March 1998. Dr. Elberg begins with the definition of microbiology and bacteriology. Oh, microbiology, or bacteriology, is the study of organisms, single cell organisms that are important in agriculture, the fertilization of soil, important in manufacturing of fermented beverages like beer and wines, are the causes of infectious diseases and are um, also useful in the manufacture of certain industrial substances, let's say alcohol and enzymes, commercially available amounts of enzymes for manufacturing and changing chemicals from one to another and so on. That well, in the past hundreds of millions of years, up until maybe, what, a hundred years ago, our species was not really concerned with the specifics of microbiology or microbacteriology. Well, it was, but we didn't know it. Uh, that is, for, for example? Well, for example, people have had diseases for as long as we know, back into recorded history. The problem then was they didn't know the causes. Now we know the causes of many, many hundreds of diseases that people died of without knowing the causes in earlier centuries. And our knowledge has only come in this area uh, from about 1870. What occurred in 1870 that allowed us to get into this area of knowledge? We have to go back earlier because the microbes were seen by Dutch and Italian scientists uh, by scraping teeth to get materials from the gums and they looked at these under primitive microscopes and they saw these small forms. Uh, this was the beginning. As microscopes then improved, why scientists were able to uh, examine other substances, tissues, soil, whatever, for the presence of uh, whatever was there and under the high powered, the highest power of the microscope, uh, they were able to see uh, the various kinds of bacteria and fungi and protozoans and other things, all of which were of interest in the uh, well-being of humans. How big are these things that we're talking about? Well, they are um, anywhere from a micron to 10 or 20 microns. Uh, that's about a thousandth of a millimeter. They can only be seen 
through the uh, higher powered microscopes, you can see the larger uh, organisms through the low powered of the microscope if you go looking for organisms in ponds and uh, rivers and s soil samples, you can see them, but uh, the bacteria are too small to be seen except by the higher pow highest power of the microscopes of today. Let's go back, if we could, to the 1870s and move forward and uh, review what uh, some of the major changes or the discoveries uh, that have occurred mm -hmm. and how they have affected uh, human mm -hmm. beings. The beginning, really, was the work of a Dutch scientist that uh, described the organisms from scrapings of the teeth. And then uh, gradually, uh, French and German scientists and Italians began to find ways of uh, growing these organisms. Well, how did they do that? How did they grow them? Well, they grew them. That's another subject almost entirely. But they grew them in things we would call soups, which are very close to what we do think of as soups. They were very crude extracts and infusions of meat and soil and whatnot. Eventually, as uh, the science developed, they were able to um, solidify these liquid culture fluids so that on um, the solid phase, the organisms would grow in the form of little spots or dots, which we call colonies. I think one of the major beginnings was Pasteur's work on the um, problems of the wine industry and um, fermentation, and also on um, isolating organisms that were causing spoilage in the wine industry in France. From there, he went to study human diseases, and he um, isolated uh, many organisms uh, from different infectious diseases. Are we talking now about bacteria or viruses? We're talking about bacteria only, because uh, the viruses were a little later in coming, uh, being understood as such. Rabies is? Rabies is a virus, and he was... Uh, he worked on rabies, but without ever seeing the, the organism except by uh, staining portions of the brain of dogs and so on. His main work was in um, anthrax and uh, disease of sheep and uh, animals, rather. We've heard something about anthrax yes. more recently. Yes, as biological warfare agent. What is it? What would it do to us? Oh, anthrax has three major uh, forms in humans. Uh, those, for instance, who work in uh, handling animal skins that are imported sometimes from India or other countries uh, may uh, carry them on their shoulders and rub the fur rubs into the skin and um, if the fur or the skin is contaminated with anthrax uh, there will be a 
pustule or boil type of thing, an abscess. That's one form. Another form is uh, inhalation anthrax, where they breathe in the dried spores, which are resistant forms of the bacteria. They inhale these and the spores eventually develop in the lungs and cause fatal pneumonias. And then there is finally a kind of septicemic form of anthrax where it gets into the bloodstream and settles out in various organs of the body and causes a a fatal infection in that way. So anthrax is a very dangerous human disease There are some vaccines, at least one or two that I know of, available in the United States and have been for a few years to protect farmers and workers who are exposed in their um, occupation uh, to the infection. The problem is that it's a very easy to disperse through the air so that it is a model kind of a biological warfare agent that can be sprayed through the air and uh, humans exposed will inhale that and come down with anthrax. Is there a preventative? Well, or a cure? There certainly are. Uh, It's susceptible to antibiotics. Certain vaccines are known, I think to protect against some airborne forms of anthrax. But the worry is now whether the vaccines that are available are protective against the various kinds of anthrax bacteria, the mutations that occur, the mutants. Or intentionally mutated? They could be, or they are naturally mutated. In other words, there are different families of organisms within the anthrax species and variants and whether or not the vaccines we have will protect against those remains to be seen. That's a worry at the moment. Now Pasteur, to go back to him, had several irons in the fire of course during his life, one of the greatest of all bacteriologists and virologists. He was responsible for saving the French wine industry by the action of uh, pasteurizing the wine. That's heating it to a temperature that would kill the bacteria. That's right, and not disturb the flavors and the tastes as we pasteurize milk. What is that temperature? It's about 140 for a few minutes or 160 for a very short time. I think all milk and wines are used at this, the lower temperature for a little longer time. I want to take a moment and say that we're talking with Dr. Sanford Elberg, who taught at the University of California at Berkeley for about 42 years as a professor of microbiology and immunology, and for a period of time was the chairman of the department of those studies. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dr. Elberg, you were telling us about the successes of Louis Pasteur. Pasteur was the preeminent French microbiologist who has two major contributions at least. He developed a vaccine system against anthrax for animals and he uh, developed a very uh, important vaccine for the prevention of rabies. 
In uh, these two cases, he used somewhat similar ideas in preparing the vaccine for anthrax. He treated the anthrax bacteria at different temperatures so that he could weaken them in their disease-forming ability. And in that way, he tried to use living anthrax bacilli. We call them attenuated or weakened in their virulence. And he used two or three different degrees of weakening and worked with the weakest and worked up in the animals until they received the least uh, attenuated or more virulent strains. But they were all attenuated, but alive. This was for anthrax? This is for anthrax. And was that the same procedure for rabies? No, he uh, used different methods for um, inactivating the rabies virus. The rabies virus in the uh, spinal cords of rabid animals, the cords were removed and dried for different lengths of time until they were quite weakened. And using the cord material dried at the different lengths of time, he was able to inject the weakest of the materials first and then for about 30 injections into the uh, person bitten by a rabid animal. He worked up to the stronger and stronger uh, virus material in the cord preparations. It was a very painful procedure. Was it painful because of the number of injections? Yes, yes, and primarily, the, and in the location of the abdominal muscles. And it had to be an intramuscular injection. Yeah. But now it's not as complex. No, no, we have nothing as complex as that. We, it's a very much simpler, a much more powerful and simpler material. With the same success rate. Well, better. We have at least two rabies vaccines today that are in wide use. Dr. Uh, Elbert, tell us something about your studies and your work. My own work is in the field of brucellosis. Brucellosis is a disease of cattle, sheep, and goats, and other domestic animals. The camel, the horse, the yak. Now, uh, what does it do to them? Brucellosis is called, in animal work, infectious abortion. It causes the female animal to abort the birth of the young. And I should mention also, very importantly, the pig and the dog. So I want to go back to that point. Cattle, goats, sheep, dogs, pigs, uh, rodents, certain rodents. Well, it's transmitted to humans, but it's a natural disease in the animals. So we call it a zoonosis, meaning an animal disease that can be transmitted to man by various routes. Now, the disease in the animal is notably an abortion-type disease, not always, but uh, in addition to that, the animal uh, suffers from uh, many symptoms, among which, of course, is the loss of production of milk, which is a very important matter in the dairy industry of a nation. Of course, the loss of meat material by the loss of the young through the abortion, I mean, it's a very major economic disease for a country that has it. So what drew you to study this disease? Well, I was trying to find a vaccine that would work on goats and sheep 
there was a vaccine already available to protect cattle, and it was in worldwide use. And I decided I wanted to study brucellosis in the goats and the sheep. Uh, my own personal work was mainly with goats, and colleagues of mine around the world did the studies in sheep. I decided to approach the matter of the vaccine in a somewhat different way than usual. The usual way when I started in around 1947 was to look for colonies of brucella bacteria on solid media, auger plates, and find out those which might be weakened or less virulent than other colonies. I figured that was an impossibly tiresome, boring procedure and would have nothing to do with it, although that is the way the cattle vaccine was developed. And I suffered in the first years of my work by comparison, by not doing it that way. When you say tiresome and boring, it's because it's trial and error. And yes, exactly. Wait until you get a success. Exactly. And there's so much labor to testing each colony that I said I'd, I'd be an old man before I ever found anything. I wasn't going to have anything to do with that. I said to myself, we'll make the brucella deliberately weak. And I said to myself, <laughs> I'll do that by growing it growing my brucella in the presence of an antibiotic. Until I could find a brucella that was absolutely dependent on the antibiotic for growth. Now that brings up the point that I deviated from the cattle work because I chose to work on goats and sheep which are infected by a different species of brucella, brucella melatensis or sometimes originally called Malta fever, as the disease was known in humans at that time. And melatensis was the organism that in the around the world mainly was the goat and sheep brucellosis uh, cause. So I worked with brucella melatensis, obtained a culture of it from a friend in Mexico, Dr. Castaneda, and began to culture that organism uh, in the presence of uh, streptomycin until finally I had available a uh, culture of brucella melatensis that actually required streptomycin in the growth medium in order to grow. So I thought, well, that's the start. We'll, we'll use that. The streptomycin-dependent strain of brucella melatensis. And I studied that in guinea pigs, mice, and rabbits. It was not very hot. And then I decided to check it out in goats, which I brought into Berkeley from Texas, Agricultural A&M College Station, where the veterinarian there used to send me my 50 or 100 goats by rail freight. And we worked on those. And finally, I uh, thought maybe it was showing something, but it was not very good. But I thought, well, maybe if it's not so good in goats, maybe it could work in humans, but I'll approach the human side by studying it in the rhesus monkey. Was this a problem for humans? Oh, yes, it's a big problem. This is called traveler's disease. People who go to Central and South America, who go to France or Italy and eat soft 
Jesus made from unpasteurized milk will come down with brucella melitensis or malta fever or undulant fever as it was also called. How do you know when you have it? What are the symptoms? Well, it's like a severe influenza. You have fever. You don't die of it, but you have this raging fever night and day, twice a day, drenching sweats, f terrible frontal headaches, generalized arthritis, and complete prostration for several weeks. And when it's untreated, it may last permanently in a person, but today there should be no need for that since it's subject to tetracycline and other antibiotics. But that wasn't the case in my day in the beginning. So um, I studied it in monkeys. To cut the story short, the vaccine failed to immunize the monkeys and that was that. My next step was to say, well, it's too weak. I will derive from the streptomycin dependent strain, an independent strain that has a little more punch but is still attenuated. So my Graduate student Mel Herzberg did that, obtained uh, 10 different colonies, cultures, of uh, streptomycin independent Brucella melitensis, and we just labeled them 1 to 10 and started off on number 1 and decided not to waste time too much with rabbits and guinea pigs, but to go right to the goat, and we had a phenomenal result. What was that result? 90% of our animals were completely protected against an infection that infected all of the controls, the non-vaccinated animals. And so we published that. The next thing, I received an invitation from the veterinary director general of Spain to come and demonstrate the vaccine in Spain. Eventually, I went to Spain in 1957 and demonstrated the effectiveness of the vaccine strain, which I now called Brucella melitensis Rev1, meaning the first reversion. And the result in Spain was very, very helpful to future work. The World Brucella Congress in 1957 was held in um, Lima, Peru. So I went from Spain to Lima to present the story of my Rev1 vaccine, I was practically laughed out of the hall by some of the audience for two reasons. The first was rather funny because I decided to honor my hosts in Lima, Peru by giving my speech in Spanish. So I was tutored in Spanish by my research assistant there in Castilian Spanish, the most perfect of Spanish. And so I gave this talk, and all of a sudden I heard all the titters and laughing, chucklings around the room, and I, the chairman was my friend, Dr. Castaneda from Mexico, and I said, turned to him and I said, Max, what is everybody laughing about? And he said, Sandy, it's your accent. We don't speak Spanish like that here. So I said, well, Max, there's nothing I can do. I've only got the Spanish text, and this is the way I've learned it, so it'll only be a few more minutes. So anyway, after the lecture was over, I had a terrible 
period of rude questioning from the old Brucella abortus cattle people who thought that it was laughable the way I had developed the vaccine instead of doing like the agriculture people had done. But you had been successful. Yes, that didn't seem to make any difference, or if it did, they weren't very happy to receive it. What I'd like to do is um, ask you what you see the future of microbiology to be uh, in the coming years. It's a very difficult question for me because the field has passed me by in the sense that it's practically all genetics. Microbial genetics is, seems to be the answer to many problems. And, um, Can you describe what you mean by microbial genetics? It's the use of techniques that are used in genetics and in molecular biology to get out, snip out pieces of materials that are useful but which may have secondary harmful effects. And my vaccine is one which needs gentling. In other words, it tends to be a little too virulent or hot for some animals. You cannot use it in pregnant animals. If you use it in adult animals, they are left with antibodies in their blood, which the presence of which confuses the test in nature of whether an animal is infected or not because you can't distinguish the antibodies that are made by a vaccine from the antibodies that are made by a, a fully infecting organism. Genetics is, is the, uh, the molecular biology uh, techniques that are used will prepare uh, mutants, possibly, of my vaccine which are lacking uh, some of the uh, disadvantages and make it uh, much more widely useful. For instance, in my problem, my vaccine should only be used in young animals, six months or younger. There's a great controversy at the moment as to whether you can vaccinate the entire flock or whether you have to limit yourself to the slower process of just immunizing the young and eventually replacing all the older with the new, younger, immunized animals. Well, Dr. Elberg, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Yes, yes. I'm reading um, a book on plague by Anne Benson. She um, deals in this novel with the bubonic plague, both in the 16th century and in the 20th century, in parallel, on the problems of plague as it was then when it killed 25 million people in Europe in the great epidemic of the 16th century. And today, the interesting thing about it is whether or not we could possibly face a merging occurrence of bubonic plague that would have the virulence today that it had four centuries ago. Is that a likelihood? Well, the way bacteria are mutating today, it's not unlikely. After all, we're having strains of streptococci and staphylococci 
of unparalleled virulence today compared with 10 or 20 years ago. A rheumatic fever is returning as a result of streptococcal infections. Tuberculosis has flared up again. I fully expect to see diphtheria returning again because uh, adults are no longer vaccinated or kept up in their immunity against diphtheria. It could simply emerge again. Well, Dr. Sanford thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. It was a great pleasure. Dr. Sanford Elberg was a professor of microbiology and bacteriology and later the dean of the graduate school at the University of California at Berkeley. He died on April 8, 2011. This interview with Dr. Sanford Elberg was recorded at his home in Mendocino County, California in March 1998. The book that he recommends is The Plague Tales by Anne Benson. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Stale mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah 95482, California. Christina Onestad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>